If you have a Bible this morning, I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Ephesians. We will be in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. Ephesians chapter 5. And we will start reading in verse 1. We're going to focus on verses 3 through 7. But I'll read verses 1 and 2 just for context. And so this is Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord says this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Amen. May God bless the reading and the teaching of his word this morning. And so we see here at the beginning of this chapter, and we looked at this some last week, that we are told to imitate God that we are told to walk as he walks, and specifically we see this focus in walking in love as Christ loved us. And we get that description of his self-sacrificial love, his obedient love to God. And then as the verses continue, we get the, you could say, the antonym of what love looks like. If this is what the love of Christ looks like, this is what love is not. And so we see in this passage the description of these sins that do not imitate God. And so this is not, this morning, it's not really a complete list of sins, obviously, that are out of place for Christians or that we should not do. But we see this emphasis this morning on sexual immorality and these types of lifestyles that we should not do in order to display the love of God. And so as we look at this, we see, we'll kind of walk through the list and talk about it, but we'll also uh, think about the bigger picture. What do, uh, what's going on in this passage as far as individually and the church as well? But there we see these things that are not walking in love from the very first in verse 3. The first word listed is sexual immorality. And usually when we see this in the Bible, in fact, your translation may have it, usually it's translated as fornication, or that's usually the focus, but it's kind of broader than that. It definitely includes any sexual sin outside of marriage. And that really is the Bible's standard for purity, for holiness, when it comes to intimacy. Uh, The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that uh, marriage is the marriage bed is undefiled, and God has created marriage between man and a woman as the place where we see this beautiful uh, depiction of intimacy that really shows the love of God for us. That's the picture that's meant to be shown in 
marriage. And so we see the opposite of that here. Anything outside of that is what would be described as sexual immorality, anything outside of marriage. And so we see that term. We see the term impurity, and that's really a broad term. It definitely includes the context of sexual immorality, but it's broader than that. Really, anything that is impure or vile or unclean in the eyes of God, we should avoid it. Anything, we think of the lists in the Old Testament, right, of things that are impure, and there were lots of them, not just one specific one, but anything that would be impure in the eyes of God, we are told to avoid that it shouldn't be even named among us. And so it's a reminder, really, that personal holiness matters. And we see, then, the next word, we see covetousness. And so we read this list, and we come to covetousness, and we know that word means wanting something that we don't have. And it kind of seems out of place when we get to this passage. It kind of seems like we have these really bad, depraved sins, and then we get to covetousness. But really, we're reminded of two things as we see this, that in the eyes of God, the sins of our mind are just as serious as the sins we commit outwardly. We're reminded that Jesus said to lust after a woman is to commit adultery in the heart. We're reminded that our desires, our sinful desires, are not less serious in the eyes of God than our outward acts. And so God not only changes us to live differently, but he changes us to think differently, to have our minds renewed, to desire new things. And so desires and thoughts that are not in line with that are still sin. And that really, if you're looking for areas of sanctification and holiness, when we see the desires that we have, even in covetousness or other ways, we still see pockets of sanctification that still need to happen in our lives. And so we see that from this mention. But we are also reminded by this word covetousness that this is what is behind sexual sin and immorality. Right? The reason we do those things is because we want something that we do not have. That's what the Bible tells us here. And we're trying to get something in a way that God has said is not good. And this passage has a strong word for covetousness, right? We read it there in verse 5 that covetousness is idolatry. If you are a covetous person, then you are an idolater. And that, I mean, that's a strong word, that you are elevating something above God in your life when you desire something that you don't have, and you're trying to get it in a way that God says is not good. And so we see here in this passage that sin is serious. We see, we, we can think of this word covetousness and idolatry from the Old Testament and how Really, in the Old Testament, idolatry and sexual immorality are equated. They're interchangeable. When the people commit idolatry, they're called adulterers. And here in the New Testament, we see that when you are coveting and committing these sexual sins, you're called an idolater. Uh, and so we see these things really are interchangeable in a sense. They, they are giving a, a wrong picture 
of what it means to know God, of what God is like. Because again, we come back to this idea of marriage and how it's meant to be a picture of what God's love is like for us. We'll read that later in Ephesians chapter 5, that God has created marriage between a man and a wife to show the kind of love that Jesus has for the church. And so anytime that is distorted, then it clouds the picture of what God is like and what his glory is like. It's a twisting, a corruption of not just how we should live, but it's a twisting and corruption of what God's glory is like. It gives the wrong picture to people around us. And so that's why we see it listed here as such a serious thing. And we see covetousness at the heart of impurity. And it's a hard attitude that needs to change. And so if we think of that's what's at the heart of sexual immorality is covetousness, then we would see the opposite of that. The hard attitude that we need to have really is this attitude of contentment. Because contentment, really, when you think about it, is the opposite. It's realizing that the things that God has said are good, that those things that God has promised to us, that they really are good, that they really are the things I need, that he has said that he will give me what is good and what I need, and I trust him and I will follow him. And when the, the world or Satan or our own desires give this false statement about what is actually good, then that's the moment when we trust in the Lord and we see that what he's saying is right and we are content in him. And that's, that's what leads us away from sin, ultimately. But as this passage shows us, that's what leads us away from sexual immorality as well. And so we see that focus here in the beginning, and then we get to verse 4. So verse 3 is about actions, and then we get into the mind. We see verse 4 start to shift, not just onto actions, but also onto words as well. And so not only is there a specific way we should act, there's a specific way we should talk. And so the first word we see there in verse 4, let there be no filthiness, or you could translate that as shame, uh, all of these words in verse 4 are only used here in the Bible. So there's only one use of these words, and they're all used here. And so that word filthiness has this idea of shame. And it's really what we see, I think, in First John chapter 2 when we read this. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And so the idea is this, if we're not supposed to shrink back in shame at the Lord's coming, the idea is, are we doing something in our life right now that would make us ashamed when Jesus comes back? If Jesus showed up right now, are we doing something in our life, engaged in some sin that would make us ashamed at his coming? And that's the idea behind this word, filthiness or shame. That if that applies to us, we shouldn't be doing it, and we, as Christians, must not engage in those things. And then it continues, it talks about foolish talk and crude joking, right? This idea of saying words that are wrong or ridiculous, or just the idea that when we gather together to worship the Lord, what are we doing? We're doing something glorious, something serious, something weighty. And so our words shouldn't be focused on something light. Or So we see that 
here we, we shouldn't just say, uh, think that our words don't matter, or say, I'm just messing around, I'm just joking, right? But our talk matters in the eyes of God, that Christians aren't supposed to be described like this. It shouldn't even be named among us. And so we don't have to, to look very far in the Bible to see why that's out of place, right? Again, the Bible doesn't just tell us, hey, don't do this. It also tells us why. If you were to look back just a few verses, chapter 4, verse 29, it tells us why we should speak in a certain way. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And so we see something very similar there when it talks about the words we're supposed to be using, right? Why are we supposed to talk a certain way? It's so that we don't break people down. It's so that we build people up, so that we encourage, so that we give them grace with our words. And that's why these words that are foolish talk or crude joking are out of place for Christians because they don't line up with that. And so we see these lists of sins and how it's out of place for us to act this way as Christians. And we're reminded in this passage that the Bible is a mirror. The book of James calls the Bible a mirror, right? We look in it and we see a reflection of our lives. And when we see that reflection, do we see these sins in our life? And the Bible tells us a warning about these sins. Verse 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, these people have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And so if these sins describe you, if they are a consistent part of your life, if this is how people would look at you and they'd say that's a part of your life, then the Bible says there's no other way to read it. You are not a part of the kingdom of God if this describes you. And that's a serious, serious accusation. And so if the Bible tells us that, then the question is what do we do? The Bible says, not only is this our condition as people who do wrong, but the Bible holds out hope and says there is hope of change. Not only that this is where you are headed if you're engaged in this kind of immorality, but it also says there's a way to be forgiven, to be changed. Because we read in the Bible of several people who sinned in these ways. We can look at 1 Corinthians and see really a culture it's not that different from our culture today, a culture that was engaged in immorality. And what did, the, what did God tell them? He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Again, very similar to what we see here. Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And so God's very clear. Again, the standard is set. This is not the people who are a part of God's kingdom. But the verse continues, the next verse, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and by the Spirit of our God. And so this describes us. We know from the Bible that we are sinners. These may not be the sins that describe our life or our former life, but we know that this is who we are as sinners. And so what is our hope? Our hope is that this is something that we can be washed of, we can be sanctified and changed, we can be justified and declared righteous. And how does that happen? That verse tells us it's through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That if we're consumed by these things, we can be changed, and that is possible through Jesus. That through Jesus, we can be forgiven, we can be changed when we confess our sin and commit our life to him. And so, like I said, there's definitely examples of this in the Bible. One of the examples is the life of David. You remember David and how he was the great king of Israel, and yet he sinned in this way. He committed adultery amongst many other sins at that time when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he, what did he do? He tried to keep it hidden. He tried to let no one else find out. But then Nathan the prophet came and confronted David. He was sent by God, and he told him his sin. And what did David do? David didn't shift the blame to someone else. He didn't make excuses or rationalize it. What did David do? He said, I have sinned against the Lord. He confessed his sin. He was broken by his sin. He repented of it. And, and what happened? As he did that, the Lord forgave him. It says that his sin was dealt with. The Lord forgave him of his sin. That's what God does with our sin. Just like the life of David. When we confess our sin, when we repent of it, the Lord forgives us. He wipes it away from the record. And all of that is possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. We, we sing the song, right? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Not only does he wash away our sin, but he makes us whole. He makes us complete again. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, which is why we say, oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so when we look at the mirror of the Bible and we see these sins describe our life, that's when we can look to the cross and we can see Jesus there dying for our sin and we can commit our life to him, ask his forgiveness, and we know that he promises to wash us, to cleanse us, to declare us justified and righteous in the eyes of God. Even though this is who we were, it's not who we are now if we know Jesus. And so we see that here. We see that we shouldn't be deceived. Again, this verse tells us in Ephesians 5, verse 6, it tells us, let no one deceive you, right? We shouldn't think that these sins are just no big deal, that it's okay, it's not a big deal, everyone does it, right? We shouldn't believe that lie. These are serious. They will send us to hell. And so we take them seriously, but we understand that Jesus is the solution. And then we take them seriously by doing what Jesus says, by doing anything we can to eliminate them from our lives, right? What did Jesus say? 
If your eye causes you to sin, and that's in the context of lust, of immorality, right? If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to go to heaven with one eye than to go to hell with two eyes. And so we need to take drastic measures to do whatever is necessary to eliminate sin from our lives. That's what Jesus tells us. Even when other people think it's drastic or too much, sin is serious and we take it seriously. And so that, that is what we see here, that those who do these things have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. And that really leads us to this final point, I guess you could say, that I want to focus on this morning, which is the kingdom of God and the church, because you'll notice that this passage isn't just emphasizing how we should be holy as individuals, right? This is how we should live individually, but this is talking about what's happening among the saints. You notice that language there in verse 3? It says it twice. Let this not even be named among the saints, among you, as is proper among saints. So this is not just individual lives. This is what's happening among the church. And so this is telling us, really, that as a church, this is our standard. That it's not just the standard we hold ourselves to as individuals, but it's a standard that we hold ourselves to as the church, as members of the church. Because we remember what the church is, right? Think about what the church is. We know that the church isn't the building, right? Sometimes we, uh, we say that because it's just how we talk, and that's fine. Uh, but we remember that the church isn't the building, right? That this isn't the church of God, but that the people are the church of God. And so the people of God is where God dwells. And we see that in this passage, the people of God are supposed to be representing God and displaying God, just like uh, the standards of God will show up in the kingdom of God. So it's maybe a complicated way to say it. Here's, here's the easy way to say it. God holds the church to the standards of the kingdom of God. So whatever standards are in the kingdom are the standards that we're supposed to be following as the church. Because we, as the church are a part of the kingdom, right? Where else on earth do you see God ruling in the lives of people right now? It's not over the whole world right now. It's over people in the church, people who have given their life to him as Lord. And so it's not wrong to say that the church is a little slice of the kingdom of God right now as we wait for the fullness of the kingdom. And so if it's not supposed to be a part of God's reign in the future, it's not supposed to be a part of the church right now. And so this passage is why sometimes you'll hear the church referred to as kind of like an outpost or an embassy of the kingdom of God. And I kind of like that language, right? The world is the kingdom of darkness, and there's a future kingdom coming. But right now, there's a little embassy, a little outpost that tells people what that kingdom is like, that shows them an example of what it will be like when Jesus comes back and reigns over the entire world. That's supposed to be what the church does right now. And in order for the church to do that, the church has to live by these standards 
of what it's going to be like in the future. So the Bible is very clear, right? If you're living by these sins, then you're not going to be a part of the future heaven or kingdom. And so you shouldn't, the church shouldn't allow people living with these sins to be a part of the church as well. That's the logic here in these verses. If it's not going to be a part of the kingdom, then it shouldn't be a part of the church. That's what we see here. It shouldn't even be named among us. It's not proper among saints. It's out of place. And really, that reminds us why everyone can't join the church, right? The church is for people who believe in Jesus and are following him as Lord. And so if if we're not following Jesus as Lord, if we're not living according to his standards— then this passage says there's no reason to think you're a part of the kingdom of God and the church, you shouldn't join the church as well. To be a member of the church means that you have declared that Jesus is your Lord and you're living like it. And so the bottom line is that we are accountable as church membership to live a certain way. And to be a part of the church means that we are living, we're following the Lord in our lives. And there's, that's one application from this. There's, there's another application. This is the final one I'll talk about this morning. If the church is supposed to represent the kingdom of God here on earth, then that would mean we should want to be members of the church. If we have Jesus as our Lord, if we are following him, then we should want to be a part of the people who represent the kingdom of God. If the church is that little slice of light that shows people what is coming, if that's where we're headed, we should want to be a part of those people as well. Uh, We shouldn't just want to be friendly to the people of God. We should want it to be known that we are the people of God. We're declaring that we know Jesus and we're following him. And that's really what we declare as members of the church that this is who we are, that this is where we're headed, and that we are an embassy, an outpost, where you should be able to come and see what it will be like in the future. And so we see that from this passage, that the standards of the kingdom are the standards of the church, and that has an impact on how we function as a church, and how we should want to be a part of the church. And you could Really, you could boil it down to this. I've said it a couple times throughout the sermon. But this passage is really about showing a picture of God to the world. Being a member of the church shows a picture of Christianity and what it is like. That it's a commitment. It's a covenant that we are following the standards of God. Being a church that is holy and not engaging in immorality shows what the love of Jesus is like, that is pure and holy and self-sacrificial and looking out for the good of others. And it shows what the kingdom is going to be like. It's a picture of that, of what is truly best. And then you see the, the personal exhortation in this passage as well of walking in love, of fleeing from sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness, and to use our words to thank God. 
And this passage has an exhortation to us as individuals that we represent God as individuals and as the church, that we should be showing people what the kingdom of God is like in our lives. They should get a picture of it when they look at us. And so that's what we see in this passage, and in a very real sense, that's uh, a lot of the same points of what we get to remember this morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. But let's pray together as we continue. Father God, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you give us the bad news as well as the good news. That you tell us very clearly what the standards are and how we will not be a part of your kingdom. We will not get to live with you forever if we are living this way. And so, Lord, I pray that you will humble us, that you will convict us of sin through your spirit, and that you will lead us to repentance as we see your goodness, that you warn us ahead of time so that we have time to turn and, and follow you and be forgiven. Lord, and thank you for the goodness of your kingdom and the goodness of your love. I pray that we will see how good it is, that we will not believe the lie uh, of covetousness, that something else is better for us, but that we will be content and believe that what you have given us is what is best and what is good. Lord, continue to change us into holy people who are following you. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.